Hello, everybody. We're here for another Kickstarter journey, but today the tides have turned. A wandering wizard has come to join us, and uh, first we're going to do a little wizardly banter just for some entertainment's sake. I'll start off. It matters not what someone is born, but what they grow to be. Hmm. <laughs> the wise speak only of what they know. Nice. It is our choices that show what we truly are, far more than our abilities. Hmm. <laughs> yes, yes, but, but only a small part is played in great deeds by any hero. Ah, wise. It does not do well to dwell on dreams and forget to live. Remember that. Oh, yes, yes. Oh, that is good, that is good. Oh, but also, it, it is not despair, for despair is only for those who see the end beyond all doubt. We do not. Oh, despair you speak of. Well, happiness can be found even in the darkest of times, if one only remembers to turn on the light. Hmm. Ah, yes. But if that light does not turn on, good sir. If you're in doubt, the lights are out. Always follow your nose. And remember this, wandering wizard. We are only as strong as we are united, as weak as we are divided. Ah, oh, 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 oh. ah yes, you've been around the block. <laughs> ah, and one, one more here for you. All we have to do is decide what to do with the time that is given to us. This is so true. Well, thank you, Wandering Wizard, for those amazing words, that fun banter. Mm -hmm. uh, for, those of you, for those of you tuning in, uh, this is Wes with Kickstarter Journeys, and we have here Michael Brigell, who is going to flip the, the storyline a bit here. We're on our 50th episode of Kickstarter Journeys, and um, he took the initiative to reach out to me and ask if I might mind being interviewed. So I'm actually going to give the entire reins from the rest of this interview over to Michael and see what he has to ask for me. So welcome, Michael. Ah, thanks, Wes. I, <laughs> that was hilarious. <laughs> that was, that was awesome. <laughs> I, I really appreciate you having me on here, Wes, and, and saying yes. And I'm, I've been a fan for a while and uh, a listener of your podcast and follower of all your content. And I am so excited to, to be here to, to ask you some questions that I haven't quite, <laughs> that, that I've been wanting to ask you. So yeah, thank you so much for having me on. My, my last name is pronounced Briegel, by the way. I'll just, it's a weird name. I don't even, I probably don't even pronounce it right, but Michael Briegel, just, uh, <laughs> just so yes, you know here. Glad to have you on and glad that you reached out to have this kind of an alternative method of discussion. So yeah, yeah, my pleasure. Well, let's, let's dig into it, Wes. So um, listening to a lot of your content, I, um, you know, I, I really want to know, and I was real, I'm really fascinated that you've only been doing this for a couple of years. Um, I think you mentioned like 2018, you kind of got started or kind of around there. And, um, and I just wanted to know, like, what, what is, what was the life of Wes Woodbury like before then? And what was that? I know you talked about Legends of Novus and, and getting into, you know, you've, you've loved fantasy since you were 16 and, and playing D&D &D and um, 
and just being in that world. But what brought you, like, what were you doing before Legends of Novus? Before Legends of Novus, well, um, I guess the, the best answer to that question is what did I used to do with my spare time before making board games took over pretty much all of the spare time that I have, at least the time mm-hmm. that I dedicate to myself. Uh, so what I used to do with spare time and what I used to do to entertain myself was play video games, watch movies, and play Magic the Gathering and other um, kind of card and board games. So I spent a lot of time doing that when I wasn't busy working or having family time. And um, something mm. changed in early 2018. We went out to play Magic and I was kind of getting bored with it, um, even though I played it for 20 years. Like uh, It's probably the the best building blocks for game design you can have. But um, I went out to play in a tournament with my son and the tournament was canceled and we thought, you know, we're here. Why don't we play a game? We pulled a game off a shelf. It was called um, uh, Munchkin and uh, I played it and I loved the concept and hated the game. And um, it just reminded me of that I've always wanted to create something in a fantasy world. I used to try writing. I used to try art. Um, I never thought of making something that kind of let you use your creativity with art and writing and fantasy all merged into one. And and so that game night kind of changed my philosophy. And from that day on, anytime I had free time, whether it was in the middle of the day or late at night or early in the morning or on a car drive, um, kind of board and card game design took over my mental state for that spare time. Oh my goodness, that is amazing. I love how it came down to kind of like to one night, one moment, one game that sort of like flipped the switch. I've definitely had those moments and and, and Wes, you're a man after my own heart. I I play magic too and got my wife into it and yeah, yeah. just cu- just curious side tangent. Do you did you guys play standard? Do you play limited? Do you play like EDH or commander? Or... I played all of the above. Commander, I love the idea of Commander, but I absolutely hate the overpoweredness <laughs> of being watching somebody go into an infinite combo and be powerless to stop it. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. There are things I like about Commander and thing, and that's what I don't like, or EDH, either of those. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to Preconstructed, I tried doing quite a few of those, and uh, the worst part about that was that metagame is all over the place, and it's really hard to compete against it. Yeah, and um, so my favorite method of play was either playing with pre-constructed decks built by Wizards of the Coast that you just buy the boxes and play with your family, like elves versus goblins, etc. Yeah, yeah. So simple, but so balanced. So I loved it when they made those kind of sets. And mm. then, um, but my true favorite kind of play is going to a booster draft or a sealed deck and building your deck right there on the spot. Yes. And um, every single card and every single decision matters more in that format than in any other form of magic because only you know kind of what's in your deck and a single mistake changes the game whereas in those pre-construct or those uh those other formats um you can really build a deck around um making mistakes but in limited you know Mm -hmm. it's holds barred you make a mistake and you're dead and it was so fun to play and uh, you felt more accomplished when you won those ones because it was all you Oh yeah, absolutely. It it levels the playing field, and I'm I'm 100 with you. I I used to go to all the sealed events, and it's it's so fun because it combines uh, drafting in some cases, drafting and deck building, and then executing on that. And yeah, like you you mentioned, it has all the components. Uh, I'm 100 with you. That's it's that's my favorite format as well. 
Yeah, it's, it's always fun when you think you know where you're going in pack one and pack two, you open up a, a power rare or like a seven or eight dollar rare, but it doesn't work with your deck. And it's, that's the moment, you know, am I playing yeah. to win? Am I playing for money? And I was always yeah. trying to win. And then the person next to you is like, why'd you pass this? Like, I'm not going to win with that. And then I go on to win the tournament. Like, oh, I know why you think uh, that. Yes, you're you. Uh, I always get caught by the fancy. Oh, I really want this. But oh, you always, yep, yep, you pick the removal, the bombs. Is that something that you like? Is this naturally inherent? Did you develop that through your environment growing up? Do you, do you have your parents to attribute for that? How do you get that? Um, like, I'm, I'm going to play to win. Like, obviously, you're going to have fun, but you have that kind of winner's well, mindset. I, uh... My first job was making a dollar an hour. I guess my second job, my first job was delivering newspapers until I got hit by a car and broke my legs. Um, then my what? first real job was getting uh, paid a dollar an hour to work in a comic store. On It was kind of like a life at work experience for junior or high school. So for a year and a half, I would work in the comic back room and sort comics or sort magic cards for a dollar an hour store credit. And so I'd watch these people play and I'd watch the competition and I'd I just over time became involved and obviously that kind of geared my life of magic for the next <laughs> couple of decades, sadly. But um, that's where I grew competitive is just seeing those tournaments start. I, I ended up running tournaments at that store later on when I got paid real money. And then mm. that, that's where it started. Uh, okay. As for family, family, I don't think built the competitor in me other than the fact that I had a, a single parents and low income so a lot of what you got in life you had to get yourself mm, okay yeah yeah i can definitely see that in your life in terms of like you produce so much and i want to get into this soon of, of how much you produce and you have a family you have you know a full-time job and you put out uh, you know so much content on youtube on you know podcasts you're bringing game after game you're engaging i see you in all sorts of groups um so maybe we're going to segue right there like how do you get it all done wes <laughs> <laughs> uh you, you got to pick your battle sometimes like my the amount of time i've invested into tabletop simulator has come down a bit since uh, the pandemic started and everybody's on there anyway but uh, mm. I kind of pick channels and pick um, ways that I can contribute back uh, while still feeling like I'm learning something. So when I was doing all the tabletop simulator stuff, I wanted to learn how to try different components and make different tables and layouts. Mm. So, but I can only do so much with my own game. So volunteering and reaching out to people and saying, hey, I know you have a game. Um, it's, I can probably build that for free for you. Um, or when I was doing the podcast or the YouTube uh, playing those games helped me get a better idea of how people design and make games. So it was self-serving in many ways, but I thought if I'm going to do it, why don't I share what I do and learn with others? And um, this year it was about the podcast. And um, mm. the reason for, for this one was, you know, um, it was done by Richard Bliss. He had a Funding the Dream podcast that I'd listened to uh, every episode. And then he life changed for him and he went on to do other things and there wasn't another podcast that was really focused on uh, board game Kickstarters. And so I just wanted to, I knew I'd already made three or four of them and uh, found that as an avenue. So uh, to, for how I decide what to do, you know, um, it can be pretty random at times, but I just contribute what I can, when I can. Um, and the more spare time I have, the more I try to make. Mm, that's awesome. That's beautiful. I, I can definitely 
I, I just see you producing valuable content for people and throwing it out there. And I, I like that blend because uh, it's win-win it's a, it's a scenario. You're learning something, you're providing value. I like um, that you're switching focus too. So, okay, now you're focused on the podcast. What's what's something from the podcast that's you maybe didn't expect or, I don't know, a guess that you had? It's, you're getting all these people and it seems like you just jumped in out of, I don't know, it's not out of nowhere, but I don't know. <laughs> do you have any particular thing that you were surprised uh, about with the podcast? or? Uh, I think the is just everybody is so very accessible. It didn't matter if I was trying to reach out to Eduardo or um, Gil Hova or Jamie Stegmeier or whomever. Everybody is happy to respond. And I don't think there's been a single person other than um, Simon Games who has said, um, said that they would come on and didn't or said they wouldn't come on. So just a, a surprising how open the community is. It's more than just uh, Facebook and Twitter posts. It's actually being mm. willing to spend... 30 minutes or an hour with me on a with a stranger on a phone call um so it's cool how open people are that was surprising yeah that is that's awesome that's so cool do you have like a a favorite nugget of wisdom from your podcast so far in those conversations that you just they said this one thing and it has stuck oh there's been so many this is uh, 49 episodes now um I, th I think the main thing is just building and playing what you believe in more than anything else. Uh, I think a few people mm. have said that in, in different ways. Uh, why did they create the game that they wanted to create or what advice would they give? And uh, the one that always sticks with me is uh, don't make what other people are asking you to make. Just make what um, what you're passionate about. And you still listen to advice along the way. But if you're not building something that you're building for you and that you like, then uh, it's not going to do nearly as well as if you just, you know, go and try to build a uh, deck builder because that's what everybody's building type of thing. Mm, yeah, that honestly, that advice motivates me so much, too, because you you always think about what's practical, what is what's popular, what's going to sell, what's and there's this circle, right, that intersects between what is going to be relevant that people want and then what you absolutely love and yeah, yeah, that's and, good advice. And like uh, even the thing that I'm making next, and we might touch on that later. But the thing I'm making next, um, I think there's a lot of negativity around it, and I think um, I see a lot of promise in it. So just trying to get past the barriers. Another one, another person that did that very, very well, and you've probably seen him on some of the posts. But uh, Andrew Lowen is building a game called Deliverance, and mm. uh, I talked about this on some of my episodes. But um, it's a Christian faith-based game but it's not built around that as a mechanic uh, but even the name alone he got berated about and told it would never work and that it was too mm. closely related to a movie from the 80s and he just mm. pushed, past, pushed past, past those barriers and said you know what this is the game I want this is the title I want and I'm going to make it work and this guy's got thousands of followers and you can see every post uh, people are excited about his game so just having that faith in making what you want to make Oh, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, you just love to hear that, right? When someone just goes out and does what they want and then like an audience follows because there's passion there. I, yeah, yeah I, I dig that. Yeah, we'll get into Questeros a little bit later. Um, I definitely have more questions for that. Um, going back to, I just wanted just one more question in terms of how you get it done. And do you have any... I just, <laughs> I just see you doing it all, right? Yeah. Like you're doing it all and you have a full-time job, you have a family. And I, even in our conversation, like your, your family time, 
is clearly valuable. Like you, you went up, oh, I'm busy Saturday, you know, it's family time. And uh, so like, so how do you have any advice on how you sort of schedule things? How you do you t- do time blocking? Do you like schedule every 15 minutes of your life? Like some high performers, like how, how do no, you do no, it all? Cause you, not, uh, yeah. not a good scheduler. Um, mm. There's one philosophy and I can't remember when I saw this or what I saw, but uh, I think it was Seinfeld who had a calendar on the wall and I don't have a, a physical calendar, but it's in my mind. And basically uh, the way he described it was that there can't be a single day that goes by where you didn't do something about what it is you're trying to become. And so he was trying to become a comedian and obviously he mm. was well off. And for the span of five years, I don't, I think the way he described it is he didn't miss a single day on his calendar or if he did, it was very guilt-ridden. Uh, mm. And so I live by that same philosophy where I may not be able to schedule time into every day, but there is time in parts of every day where you could be doing something. And so I just happen to be passionate about making board games and developing content. So that's um, a commitment I make to myself is that there will not be a day go by that I don't spend at least 15 minutes, preferably at least an hour, um, doing something with the hobby, whether it's making my game or editing somebody else's or doing a podcast or making a YouTube video, uh, playing mm-hmm. games. I don't really, I don't put playing games in that bucket unless I'm play testing a game. Um, but mm-hmm. whether it's uh, at um, seven in the morning or whether it's on a weekend or whether it's at midnight, um, there's not a day that's gone by in the last um, two years that I haven't done something. And, and you might think that it's impossible, but you got to think about all the ways that we embrace and use technology. Uh, so I have designed parts of my game um, using the Notes app on my phone. I have recorded uh, mini podcasts or side quests uh, in my car on the side of the road on my cell phone and just launched it from there. And, and maybe the quality is not the greatest, but those are little things that you do or, you know, if you work until eight at night and you get home and you spend two hours with the family, um, still, you know, when they're asleep, you spend half an hour before you go to sleep. And um, I just have this faith or belief that um, if you put enough time and energy into it, Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 um, hours, um, that it will change the, your results and you just get better and more natural with those things over time. Woo. There it is, folks. That's that's how you get it done. <laughs> that's I love that, Wes. Are, are you do you read a lot? Do you um I don't know. Do, do you read a lot or listen to podcasts and, and I don't know, develop this? It seems like you have a lot of concepts down, like you do versus overthink, you know, like done is better than um, per- perfect or, you, you know, failing fast and, and all these things that I hear you talk about. Is that something you cultivate yourself? You just picked up over time and you execute on? Uh, I gained a lot of knowledge through books back in my younger management mm-hmm. days. Uh, since I got into hobby board gaming, I spend less time reading and more time yeah. doing things, creating. I've already absorbed a lot of knowledge, and it's just a matter of falling back on it. Uh, but I do a lot of commutes, and during those commutes, sometimes I'll listen to uh, podcasts or I'll have a YouTube video playing, but just listening to it type of thing, um, and just try to learn a little bit. And so maybe if I have a two-hour commute, I might spend uh, half an hour of that listening to music. I might spend half an hour of that uh, listening to something about leadership. I, I might spend half an hour of it learning how to use Excel for my new role in my job. It just be, mm. instead of just um, absorbing other people's uh, entertainment content, I also try to learn. So um, mm. I, I, there was a guy I just listened to actually earlier today, and um, he was talking about the one thing he learned 
about how to do good drawing and it was about committing yourself to one thing um, more than anything else and i'll share the link with you but i thought it was kind of neat just how they worded it so it doesn't matter what you're listening to you can always absorb and learn something and i just try to pick up on those mm. yeah that's that's a great use of your time is there anything from your from your day job um that you like apply i think i, I read your title once and i'm like man you sound like <laughs> yes you have a fancy job you know some you know some things <laughs> is there anything uh um one i'm gonna give a two-part question here one that you you take from your day job that you apply or any like your 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 um your traditional your background your knowledge that you, you bring to the table and then two like balancing that and and like with your family in yeah uh, and again you, you already answered this but um yeah just that balance of hours and time and and, yeah. and like your wife does she is she into this stuff does she <laughs> like is she is she playing you know listening to these things or is she playing and play testing your games and i want to know all the things all right well we'll start with part one of your question that's uh, how does my work help or uh kind of help me stay focused what did I learn from work, I guess? So for the last mm -hmm. 15 years, I was a store manager at Walmart stores. I ran three or four different stores in different parts of Alberta. And um, and from that, I just learned how to multitask, how to interact with people, how to work on a budget, how to um, digest different reports and data, and um, basically how to stay self-motivated because when you're in a role where you're the store manager kind of the buck stops there and if you're not motivated nobody is so um i think those are kind of the main points that i learned from that store manager role is um just being accountable for everything and finding a way to make it work regardless of the odds if you're understaffed or if there's a power outage or if there's a black friday or whatever it is um, mm. in the Walmart world there's all kinds of things that happen and um, it's your job to to be the one that has the answers, and if you don't, you better find them quick. So, so, uh, and then recently, about uh, back in beginning of June, I started a new job called a total loss manager. So instead of working in one store, I um, I'm paid to travel around and visit multiple stores to see if they're following process and if they're um, need advice or give them resources. And um, I can tell you, I'm learning a whole lot about managing data, uh, filtering reports, and finding ways to make it easier to communicate that to others. So mm. uh, some of those skills will relate to my hobby enjoyment down the road. Are you good at, at looking at the data on your own games, on like taking the time to review, I don't know, the data from maybe ads or, or, Not or yet. all yeah, that I kind of stuff? I haven't gotten to a point where I extract any reports yet. I can build my own spreadsheets, but I haven't... Uh, used Google Analytics to the uh, potency that I've seen others do it. So maybe that'll come down the road. But for now, yeah. I just uh, stick with some basics and hope that a good game and a good idea and some good art and some good communication will be enough. Mm. And then for the family part, I mean, my wife does enjoy board games. She never did like Magic the Gathering uh, until mm. near the tail end. And then we played a little bit. But uh, she does like the different strategy and board games that are out there and uh, supports the hobby that I have. Sometimes I'll, I'll spend a little bit too much time focused on um, this gaming mm -hmm. stuff, so I'll have to step back. And um, usually I'll do about 90% of my work on any of this stuff 
either um, uh, when we're traveling, I might do stuff on my cell phone or uh, late at night when the family's already gone to sleep. Otherwise, um, usually family time is family time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Um, just to keep things moving here, I we're kind of gonna gonna jump here to. It, it seems like you're not afraid to fail at stuff, not afraid to pivot or to move forward. Um, it, so I heard that you you failed your first Kickstarter for Legends of Novus. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. What is it like to not fund the Kickstarter? Um, well, with Legends of Novus, it was inspiring to some extent. I mean, my funding goal was pretty high. And to even see that uh, there was about $15,000 worth of uh, pledges in there, that, uh, that was pretty amazing to begin with. Mm. When the uh, um, first-time creator or second-time creator, my first one was just a small card game. So uh, there was that. And then... Um, it was kind of gives you make gives you a forced step back approach and see what kind of advice was out there that I knew about that I did not follow or what kind mm. of advice is out there that I had not heard about. So there were some things out there about graphic design and about having a more, more polished prototype and about having high quality reviewers that for a game of my scope, uh, I should add some more of that stuff in place. So I learned from that. For a smaller game, if it's a, a card-based game or a, a less strategic game or less um, heavy fantasy kind of game, then you don't need as much. But um, I, I realized after that first shortcoming that I had to reassess components, reassess my layout, reassess my video and and my reviews and really step it up if I wanted to make as many as I wanted to make. Mm. So, So you really went from... Like you didn't have this heart sinking feeling or is it kind of like one day it was a mix of both like your heart sank and then you're kind of like, you know what, there's enough people. OK, I am like, do you move that quickly into forward thinking? Um, it was about halfway through the campaign. I knew it wouldn't fund. I ran it right to the mm -hmm. last day just to keep um, getting new attention and, and talking to people that were um, interested in backing it and just seeing how much I could grow the audience that way. Um, and I was kind of uh, watching some other campaigns while grow, while watching mine not grow so much. And it was fun to see how Dungeons of Infinity was doing and how some other uh, bigger campaigns were doing and just kind of watch what they were doing while my campaign was still active. So um, it, it can be a little bit heart-wrenching to, to watch your offspring or your baby not quite succeed, but... Mm -hmm. Again, stay forward focused. If you if you believe it's something that people would enjoy, then keep pushing forward. Uh, some some Kickstarters um, don't fund, but they don't fund with like they have a one percent or two percent. Uh, those mm. are kind of games and creators that should really scrap that idea or um, overhaul it. Uh, thankfully, mine was at a point where I could just do a few things over the course of two months to finesse it and relaunch, whereas others don't have that luxury. Mm, yeah yep that makes sense i'm still insanely impressed and inspired by your ability to pivot to move forward and be forward thinking i could i could see just freaking out and and for <laughs> some people you know that kind of pressure or like not failing at something there a lot of people are are fearful 
to fail. And I, I really appreciate that about you and, and just being able to move forward and just oh, fix this. And, oh, okay. I'm going to learn this. And yeah, that's, that's good stuff, Wes. At, taking that type of attitude with Questeros or with your new game, you had mentioned before that um, this game kind of has some of that, like, um, oh, some people might not like it for a few uh, reasons. Could you tell us about, yeah, I don't know about your new project and, and why, <laughs> I don't know, why maybe yeah. it, it might have some of those things? Well, Questeros is, um, it's going to be a, a little bit of a lighter game compared to my last two games, like Die in the Dungeons and Legends of Novus had a lot of components, a lot of mechanics, large rule books, a lot of different um, arts and characters. So I wanted to take a step back and make something that was more accessible, could reach a broader audience, and that I could still have fun with. And kind of my whole theme is still have strategic games and always have a fantasy setting. Because again, like I said, uh, make things that you're passionate about. I've always enjoyed fantasy. Yeah. So I kind of looked at what's out there and uh, looked at some of the stuff I've been playing with my family recently and that I see is popular and, um, and, and that kind of cross those paths. And that's where I thought of making it my own trick-taking game but with a fantasy theme and, I, and so i kind of looked around and saw what was out there and what could i do and um i don't know what triggered it but i ended up looking at tarot decks and seeing all of the different um, major arcana and um the classic icons of wands and cups and staves and coins uh, mm. immediately brought me back to the four classic fantasy character classes of wizards mm. and fighters and clerics and um, that just got my wheels turning and um, eventually was able to do some research and discovered that tarot was actually originally a trick-taking game, which I had no idea until after I decided oh. to make my trick-taking game based on tarot. So if you actually research a tarot deck, um, the origins of it was that it was a trick-taking game and the divination aspect and the, the, um, the future and fate um, that it's used for now didn't even exist when they originally made the first tarot decks. It wasn't until uh, they applied special art with Rider Waite that it became a much more occult and divinatory tool. So I thought that mm. was really interesting. And then I, I yeah. thought, what if I can use a tarot deck for both? What if it can be the tarot deck and have classic symbology and iconography built in, but be a trick-taking game? And using those two, um, kind of a third tangent is having an RPG fate deck element to it. So not only could you use it as a tarot deck if you wanted to for those tarot enthusiasts or somebody who wants to learn a tarot deck, but um, inside the rules, there will also be kind of a, a sub tarot where uh, here's a, a very uh, outline rule set of how you could use this deck to um, apply to games like Dungeons and Dragons or Pathfinder and just say, hey, um, you know, at the beginning of each um, story or campaign or session, everybody gets a random card at any point they can play it. And uh, based on the iconography and, and type of card it is, uh, it'll have some kind of impact on whatever situation they're facing at that time. So if a player is uh, in the middle of a, a battle against a giant ogre and they're down to their last hit point, but they happen to have a card that says strength, maybe that's the time to play it before you get crushed. Mm, and, and it'll yeah. be up to the, the game master or the dungeon master to um, kind of implement some fun with that card. And at the same time, the, the game master or dungeon master would have a random card for each player hidden at the beginning of the session. And they might pull that card out and say, uh, here's something that was kind of built into your fate. So 
um, I just thought it would be a neat way to to bridge three different um, types of people: normal gamers, um, tarot enthusiasts, and role playing gamers, and see if that was a way to bring those three together in different ways. So yeah, that's Quisteros in a nutshell. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, Wes, it's like a trifecta. It, I can't believe I, I, how much depth you can bring in to a game. It has like these three elements to it that are so unique. And uh, are you are you like approaching the marketing or your audience a little differently this time? Are you going to test out kind of targeting certain uh, certain audiences differently than you normally would? Yeah, I mean, I've already kind of got my feelers out. I've been um joined about four different tarot reading and tarot card groups mm. on Facebook. I've added tarot to my hashtag on Instagram and, and Twitter and just kind of seeing what people are interested and excited about. Occasionally I'll share a piece of art and um, the tarot enthusiasts love to see the symbology in there, which is great. Uh, so yeah, I'll be approaching it that way. And then when, when it does come time to uh, launch this on Kickstarter, which will probably be early next year, um, you know, Facebook always has targeted ads, so um, I'm sure those keywords will be in there. Yeah, yeah. Oh man, you're going deep. You're you're going deep on this one, man. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, well, I think there's going to be a lot of interest in that. Some, the artist has done some really amazing work with the ideas and sketches that I sent mm. him. So that really helps too. Yeah, the art is looking awesome so far. Um, yeah, it, it super fascinates me. Are uh, so I see I see stuff coming out for this game, and you're getting input on the name, on the look. You're starting to 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 put out content for your new game, kind of as your other game is funded, and you're keeping up with that. Uh, Die in the dungeon, you know, is funded, and and you know people are following you, and kind of like, oh, this is here, and you kind of transition like perfectly into oh but i got something else coming how planned is that like did you have this idea like five months ago and it just was a matter of oh yeah, but was it very deliberate or did it kind of just happen to fall in or how does that how does that work in wes's brain uh well i kind of try to plan out by the time i'm wrapping up a kickstarter i'm i am already working on a couple designs or i might have already had a couple of um like really basic white prototypes that I might be working on at home. Um, I mean, I want my focus to be finishing those Kickstarters as cleanly as I can. And uh, mm. Legends of Novus has been quite frustrating on that side of things for the shipping mm. to eat. But um, as I was wrapping up Die in the Dungeon, I knew most of the art was already done. Most of my concepts were already done. And um, there was one point where I'd worked on the game for like two weeks straight for a couple hours a day, sometimes more. And just needed a break so uh, i but um as you know my philosophy is don't stop working on games so what can i do i think i can mm. try to abolish a new game so uh, I, I looked at some of the stuff i've been working on and decided to take that trick taking game further uh, mm. while i was uh, kind of in a in a break between you know a mental break for die in the dungeon mm. so and then it just evolved from there once i felt that the game concept and um kind of the layout of it was cemented. That's when I started reaching out to artists. I had a couple in mind and one I was al almost ready to go with, but uh, life plans didn't work out for that particular individual in my time frame. So um, ended up um, 
getting in contact with John and uh, very happy that he and I could work together. And art always inspires me to, to go full tilt on a game. So as soon as I have a couple pieces of art and I can see if the artist's mm. um, creation matches my vision, then it gets me inspired to, to just get making the rest of it. And that happened with Die in the Dungeon for sure. And uh, it's happening again with Questeros. Mm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I can see where that gets you. It gets you rolling. The, the art is gorgeous. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not yeah. like you. I'm I'm working to be to be more like you, where you are your own artist, and you've got some crazy skills working on your uh, um, your wizards and relics, and and what, I've seen you do some of those live videos, and you just put that or uh, digital pen to work and make it happen. So uh, that is my next goal, and you've probably seen me posting a couple things here and there. Um, is to be able to do my own art for a future game. Yes, I can't wait for that game. <laughs> That'll be so awesome when you bust that out. I, it's fun, and it's I almost regret it. <laughs> there's so much work. Uh, comes, you know, there's the yin and yang of, of everything, I guess. But yep. Yeah, and kind of kind of like I've been doing with anything else, uh, I take the approach whereas as I try to develop my craft, is there a way that I can use it for others? So um, I saw a random post on one of the tarot feeds I was on saying, I wish I had an icon for my car. And so um, they were asking for requests if there's anybody that they could pay. And I said, well, you don't have to pay me, but I can try to make something. And then somebody else was making a board game and they just wanted to have some of their own special icons for a prototype for some Roman mythology game. So I said, hey, I'll make your icons. You can use them if you want, trash them if you don't. And mm. again, not to be paid, but just to be given something specific to practice with instead of um, trying to make something of my own that I, I'm not um, sure what to make type of thing. Oh, my gosh. That's awesome, Wes. Oh, that's so cool. That's really awesome. You're able to provide that value and uh, and jump in there. My God, I'm going to, jeez, Wes, I'm going to steal all your ideas. <laughs> <laughs> that's so cool to hear, man. That's uh yeah, I, I. So you're like you're in, like an illustrator. You talked about kind of trying your hand at writing, and and you're just like a lover of this world of things, fantasy, and now game making, and just in, you're you're just creating. What, what is your, I don't know. What's your like goals for fundamental games? Like what what do you want to see? This right now, it sounds like you're you're you just love it, and you kind of can't not do it. But I there's also a lot of intention. And, and what you're doing in planning. So I don't know, what what's your kind of goals? I don't know if you set goals or make them for uh, fundamental games. Yeah, I mean, I mentioned to my wife shortly after investing some money into Novus that uh, I would like to see it be kind of like uh, a contributor to income as opposed to uh, a black hole mm. for income or even yeah. uh, <laughs> at zero for income. Right now it's, yep. it flows between zero and the red quite often. It usually doesn't get green. Um, mm. And so I'd like it to get to a point where it could contribute, you know, anywhere between uh, twenty five to $50,000 a year to our income line. Just, um, but it's not built on it having to do that. I mean, I, I do have a full-time mm. job and I, I do have um, a supportive family and we make enough income to, that, that this company isn't needed for that. But uh, mm-hmm. eventually I'd love to see one of the games be kind of like an evergreen that uh, people talk about on uh, on Facebook or on video uh, podcasts or reviewers and saying, hey, you really should check out this game or this is a good one to have on your shelf. It'd be nice to be 
to have a title like that. I know uh, a company can't have every title like that. Not everybody can be Stonemeyer Games or um, Ravensburger, but if you can even get one game like that, then you build a, a permanent foundation to help supplement your creation to other games. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a that's a good goal. I dig it. Is there? I'm gonna I'm gonna move into I don't know some some tips. I think I think you're you're a wealth of knowledge, Wes, and you've you've learned a lot of things. And um, is is there is there is there a few tips that you can share with people who haven't been around the block as much as you? Um, it seemed like you you dove you dove right in, and I know you've, you've, I've heard you give advice on making a you know a smaller game. You kind of learned that lesson right with Novus, yeah. uh, making a smaller card game, testing out the waters. Um, for someone who's like myself, I'm just I'm kind of new in this arena, and I've been I'm working on my first game, my first Kickstarter. It's a card game and doing that kind of stuff. But what uh, what are maybe a few things? that kind of bubble up to your brain right now that you can share um, around that like first time, first game, first or second game creators? Um, first one would probably be getting enough exposure for your game. Uh, and exposure comes in a lot of different ways. It can come through reviewers. It can come through your own social influence and growing community. It can come through... Um, playtester circles it can come through paid advertisements so um depending on your comfort and level with your game and what you want to accomplish with it you have to decide how much time and or money or both that you're going to invest in that and so uh, i think the the best bang for your buck when it comes to getting people to see your game is probably targeted facebook ads if you can do it the right way and if you don't, if you've never done it before, then uh, you really would want to reach out to somebody who's familiar with it, whether they're paid or unpaid support. Mm. Uh, because I, I thought I thought I was doing the right thing with the first Novus by doing paid ads without talking to anybody and just saying, "Hey, I'll just boost this poster, ten dollars yeah. on this every other day, and see what happens." Um, Facebook will be glad to take your money and give you nothing for it, other than telling you people clicked. But telling people yeah. telling you clicked doesn't. <laughs> Uh, there are so many mm -hmm. different workarounds and Andrew Lowen and David Palermo were both very educational in, in sharing some of their thoughts and how that works. So um, so the first piece of advice is uh, generate exposure in any way that you can. And if you're going to do Facebook ads, uh, it will pay off if you do it the right way. So I guess that would be the first piece of advice. Um, mm. Second piece would be make sure people have a way to see how your game plays. So I've seen um, Kickstarter campaigns where uh, they're really all about sharing the art with you or saying, oh, this game will replace all the downfalls of Magic the Gathering. It'll be so much better. Um, mm. But then you go to watch a video and you see a two-minute video of how it's played instead of an actual playthrough. Or you want to look at the rules and the rules aren't ready yet, so they don't share them. So having... Basically, when you launch your game, they should be able to see a video on exactly how it's played from start to finish. They should be able to see a rule book, and they should be able to have a, a strong sense of what your game is all about, what are you trying to accomplish, and be able to both read and see it. So that would be oh. a second tip. 
Oh my gosh, that's I'm like writing that down right now and applying (laughs) it to my life because I'm like, oh man, I I need more playthroughs. (laughs) That's that's good. Duly noted on that one. Um, I also noticed, and I I noticed it early on. It can be like you just don't know what to do as far as social channels, how to engage an audience. What do you do? Do I have a page? Do I have a group? It looks like you have a pretty good methodology. You create? Do you create a Facebook group for every game that you have? Yeah, I mean, different people do it in different ways. The Facebook page I have for my company, so I have a Fundamental Games Mm -hmm. Facebook page. The good thing about that is the only person that can post to that is you, and so you have full control of whatever happens on there. With a page, you have more visibility to likes and to comments and to messages and stuff, so it can be a whole kind of filter for your company. So I definitely recommend having a company-based page, but then when Mm -hmm. it comes to individual games, um, I would recommend having Facebook groups for each game title if you can um, successfully manage through all the comments and questions on there. And the reason I suggest a, a group is then it gives people a, a small community to talk to and share and feel like they're part of something. And so Questeros has already started, but it's very small. I haven't really uh, pushed it out there too much yet. I want to wait till I have a real active print and play ready. But mm. for Die, Die in the Dungeon, as I was building the characters and building the art and the the Dominions and all that stuff with the artist Tristam, um, it was really fun to to share those and, and see how hyped up people got. And, oh, wow, look at that demon's chest made out of dice or look at that uh, dice placer beast or whatever it was. Mm. Um, so it was cool. And then you could throw out ideas about your character boards or your rules or... Um, your images in that group without having to constantly inundate um, board game design groups with your stuff. Cause you can reach out to those bigger, broader uh, advice groups, but if you do it too often, you're just going to um, get on people's nerves or people will just scroll past you. Whereas if you have your own dedicated group, people made a choice to be there and see your stuff. Mm. So then they'll make a yeah. choice to stay in your group and give you that advice or not. Yeah. That makes so much sense. I, Wes, if I, if I would have heard just what you said in the last like two minutes, I like when I got started, I, I spent a month stressing over do I have a group? <laughs> do I have a page? Is it the, my game? Is it the blah, blah, my company? Blah, blah, blah. That, uh, just hearing that, <laughs> that would have saved me so much time. And, it, and, and obviously, so from some of these things, there isn't a right answer or wrong answer necessarily, but that seems to, to work really well and and i definitely <laughs> am applying that same approach there you go you can always message me i'm always around oh there you go you guys heard it <laughs> all right i think we can start wrapping up pretty soon here i still have a thousand more questions but we will nice. keep brevity yes i literally could keep going forever <laughs> um is there is there an obstacle or two um, that you ran into um, during this whole thing, or maybe even early on, that I don't know, was a stumbling block, or there's something that you overcame that was that was kind of big. Yeah, um, there's uh, when it comes to making a game, I think there's three big factors that go into creating and fulfilling your game on, especially if you're doing self-publishing, which is what I always focus on. Mm-hmm. So first one, when you're kind of getting started is you want to be able to visualize your game. And in order to do that, you either have to make your own art like you do and you do it very well, or like John DeCampos does very well with token terrors. Uh, I've seen a lot of artists make their own game 
which is inspiring, which, which is what I want to do. Um, mm. But if you don't have that ability or that time, then you have to pay someone to do it. And so you got to do your research, find somebody whose skill and um, images will match up with your game. Because I've seen some games where the art really doesn't match up with the theme. It could be uh, an adult game that looks like a kid's game because of the art style or vice versa. So just finding an artist that you can also pay right away. So um, again, early on, I was one of those people that was like, hey, maybe if I tell an artist that I'll pay them if we fund, uh, maybe they'll be okay with that. That is definitely not the approach to take. Mm. If you think you're a wise guy because you're going to make that approach, um, you're making a mistake. It's not fair to the artists. They deserve to be paid for what they do because some of them mm. put in you know, four or six or eight hours into a single piece of art and they might only get paid a hundred dollars for that. So um, mm. it's just, so art would be the, the first piece that I had obstacles with trying to find the right artist. The first artist I found charged me $300 to make one card, which I didn't even like the art for. Um, it wasn't mm. until I, the third artist for Novus when I, when I kind of met and talked with Andrea Butera and just was astounded by what he created um, also with what he charged. Wow. So, did you say you founded him? You found him on ArtStation. Was that correct? Um, yeah. So um, when I was trying to figure out who to talk to, I sent probably about a dozen emails out to different people that I I looked up fantasy on ArtStation or on DeviantArt or on mm. a Facebook group about um, board game art, and um, yeah, eventually ran into him. So that was good. Mm. So that would be the first thing. The second thing that you need to do if you're going to make self-publish is uh, manufacturer game so again i made a mistake with novus the manufacturer i went with was definitely not a low cost choice and um, was very difficult to get uh, samples from and difficult to make changes to and didn't always communicate in a good time frame so at the mm -hmm. time i was kind of naive i just thought oh wow this person from this company from China is willing to make my game and it looks like it's pretty good price, not realizing that I could have got it for half the price. Um, so do your research, send out your quote to multiple manufacturers and mm. um, find one that'll work for you. And then the third one is shipping. Uh, shipping is an absolute nightmare for an independent publisher, especially going through uh, a game changer like the pandemic. So just uh, make sure that if the shipper that you use has an established reputation and a proven track record to ship to the countries that you know you want to ship to and and they, they know and agree to uh vat charges or other other things like extra add-ons and there's so many things that you don't think about you're excited to make your game and uh think oh, i'll worry about shipping later but you, you have to have that all planned out before you press launch on your kickstarter otherwise yeah. you're in for a world of hurt mm. do you, real quick do you have a couple manufacturers or fulfillment companies that you would recommend or that you've heard are good or that you that you've used that you'd recommend yeah i mean i've heard for, uh, uh if you listen to this podcast which i know you have uh some of the there's been a lot of names shouted out on here but um there's uh some ones that i've i've personally gotten quotes from were bang Wee games and hopes games which is what i'm using right now have been both very good and then i've heard um some other people use Gameland and wingo and um just there's so many out there um I know a lot of people will see the word Panda and think, wow, I'm just going to go right to that. The problem with Panda is they're extremely high quality, which is why Stonemaier Games uses them, but they're also high and expensive and have uh, very high minimum order quantities. Mm. Yeah. 
Yeah, I've fallen into that trap too. Oh, okay, yeah, I've got to do Panda. It like, kind of like they were or still are yeah. kind of that second on my list. Of, but pretty much anybody yeah. can make yeah. cards, so you don't need to go to Panda for cards if you can find a lower cost alternative. So. <laughs> All right, noted. That's awesome. <laughs> That's good. Um, so I guess we'll we'll wrap this up. I, again, I still have more questions. Yeah, but, yeah we haven't uh, talked about Wizards and Relics, Michael. So Michael. Wait, 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 wait. Okay, okay, okay. One second. Okay, one last question for you. Uh, how can you know, how can we support you today, Wes? Like, what's our the what's the one thing that would support you and the projects you're making the most? Would it would it be to join the group and if we are interested in Questeros or what can we do? Um, I think just giving feedback when I make posts on fundamental games or Questeros or board game design advice or any of those sites. If I'm, if you're into this podcast, you're probably part of many of those uh, mm. game design groups. So as long as you're yeah. comfortable with the feedback or if you want to play test a print and play, there's nothing more beneficial to a game designer than somebody who's willing to play their game, whether it's on tabletop simulator or, um, mm all out and printing and playing their own copy so that's probably the best uh form of support somebody could give um beyond that just you know if you have any recommendations or things that you've been through that um you think other creators could benefit from um and you've run your own kickstarter then join the podcast mm. yeah that's awesome that's awesome okay cool <laughs> Well, so I think I have no further questions Michael, for you, Wes. Michael is actually um, because I've been talking to him for the last year and a bit about his game, Wizards and Relics, and part of why we were talking as wizards earlier in the podcast, just a little bit of fun with you guys. But um, Wizards and Relics, you're bringing to Kickstarter, what, in November? Yes. Yep, November 10th. November 10th. The date is set. Um, I think you have your pre-Kickstarter campaign page already started, and uh, lots of graphics. Uh, I bet you're realizing now how intense it is to make a campaign page. Holy crap. Yeah, <laughs> it's unreal. Yeah. You know what, yeah, you know what the most not... thing is, is um, when you put in images and you're like, I don't want that space there. So you backspace it and then you go back next time and that space is there. Don't worry <laughs> about that. Don't stress over that. It doesn't matter. Okay. That's actually good advice. That took me a while to figure out because I, I was like, what is this? Like, the spacing is terrible. Space my title in this? I don't want that space. So you backspace five times to get rid of it. And that's there the next time you log in. Don't worry about that. Oh, <laughs> Only worry about okay. that at the very, very end. And even then it's probably not that important because I think they auto compress it. Mm. Uh, but anyway, um, Wizards and Relics <laughs> coming November 10th. And this is a uh, what two to six or two to four player game? It's two to four player. Two to four player game where you're each a wizard trying to acquire relics to um, have the the most success against your other competitive wizards, and it's kind of like um, a magical um, strategic take on war to the nth degree. And so I think it's kind of neat to see how it plays out and the decisions you have to make with your hand size and your um, what color wizard you use and what shrine is in play and what relic you attach and um, all these different timing elements to it. So uh, I think Michael spent quite a bit of time play testing with people in local circles and um, coffee shops and doing his own artwork and sharing it on social media. You've probably seen it on Instagram or Facebook. So it's really cool to see 
the, where you've gone to, Michael, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing you hit that launch button and see what kind of support you get. So, um, well, thanks and for saying sure, that, Wes. Pretty sure we'll be talking again in late November or sometime in December to say, hey, this game is funded. What did you learn and what didn't you expect type of thing? Oh, yeah. That would be glorious. <laughs> Thanks a lot for having me on, Wes. I, I really appreciate being able to just ask you these questions for my personal pleasure. And uh, yeah, yeah. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm I'm a big fan and, and still still I'm a huge fan of yours. And um, yeah, it was just an honor just being able to share space with you here and, and hanging out. Yeah, it's been a blast. I appreciate you, you reaching out and wanting to do this and hopefully the listeners on this 50th episode had some fun with uh, hearing my side of things if they hadn't already heard it before on other podcasts and um, again it's all about inspiring and sharing what we're doing in our kickstarter world to to be successful that you can learn from to do it yourself so thanks again michael we'll sign off and hopefully talk again awesome thanks wes <laughs>